Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Her story starts with deciphering Sir Francis Bacon and ends with her saving all of our bacon, featuring the likes of smoking monkeys, bootleggers, moving targets, and a machine called the Enigma. The end. Let's talk about Elizabeth Friedman, but first let's drop her into history. In 1917, Nicholas II, the last czar of Russia, abdicated and was placed under house arrest with his family. Georgia O'Keeffe had her first solo show in New York City. The British royal family renounced its German name of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha and settled on the very English House of Windsor. The 18th Amendment, which prohibited alcohol in the United States, was sent to the states for ratification, and Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin of Montana became the first woman to serve in the United States House of Representatives. People born this year include President John F. Kennedy, Ella Fitzgerald, Desi Arnaz, and the famous racehorse Manowar. Deaths this year include Buffalo Bill Cody, Queen Liliuokalani of Hawaii, and convicted German spy Mata Hari. And in April of that year, Elizabeth and William Friedman began their careers as two of the best code breakers in the world. Hello and welcome to the show. Susan is on vacation, so it is just you and I today, and we are going to get right into our story. Clara Elizabeth Smith was born on August 26, 1892 in Union Township, Indiana, the ninth of the ten children of John Marion Smith and Sofa Strock Smith. Although as the 10th daughter died in infancy, Elizabeth was raised as the youngest in a very large family. Papa's ancestors came to the shores of North America in the 1680s, along with another famous Quaker named William Penn, Sylvania, William Penn. At the time of Elizabeth's birth, Huntington was a quarry town. It's still called Limetown. But Papa had land he farmed outside of town. He was a dairy man, which means he could never take a day off. <laughs> He also served in the local government. Incidentally, for a tiny town, this place has had some famous residents. Dan Quayle, Jen Lancaster, the bloggers, does anyone follow her? And the guitarist from Motley Crue. Super random. But that excitement is all in the future. Mama, who we really don't know a lot about, except for the fact that her people were in Pennsylvania by the 1730s, so they're a long-standing family too, she gave her last child's name a little spice by spelling her name E-L-I-Z-E-B-E-T-H, which is unfortunate for search engine purposes. That's a bummer. We also do not know many specifics about Elizabeth's early childhood other than she was often ill, possibly from stress, and had what her strict father thought of as a contentious nature. They never got along. She was always questioning everything, including his authority and her parents' Quaker religion. Always wanting to know what caused something or why something happened and asking questions all the time, never quiet in class, etc. She went to the William Street School, which looks like it's been turned into loft apartments now, and then on to Huntington High School, class of 1911. And that, said Papa, is the end of a girl's education. An 18-year-old lady person had better think about getting married. True to her nature and their relationship, 
Elizabeth sent out applications to schools and said she'd pay her own way and I don't need you. She began taking commissions for seamstress work while waiting for her letters back. And I'm not sure if her industry impressed him or if her determination just wore him down. But when her acceptance letter came from Wooster College in Ohio, Papa did not soften and give her any money, but he did lend her the money at 4% interest. How about that for the last word? And she was off, out from under the thumb of Papa and into that heady, glorious freedom of freshman year. She studied English literature, specifically the works of Shakespeare, and just like me, hold on to your chairs, filled the pages with circled text, annotations, arguments, turned down pages... Sorry, everybody. It's not just me. She discovered philosophy, as one often does in freshman year, and loved to argue about it. This was right up her alley. Based on my experience in college, that's half the point of philosophy to make you think about things in new ways. So I'm glad she found it. Back home, Mama had been diagnosed with cancer. And so Elizabeth transferred closer to home to Hillsdale College, which was not right next door. It was in Michigan, but it was more accessible via railroad in case her mother needed her. Notably, this school had been founded in the 1840s by abolitionists and had always admitted African-American students and women since its founding. So she didn't actually have to break new ground with her college experience. And the president of the college, when Elizabeth got there, was an outspoken advocate for women's suffrage. So she was in an environment that allowed her to try her powers. She entered and won speech contests. She dove deep into the writings of a man named Erasmus, who I'm not going to go into here, but let's just say he is settled nicely right between religion and philosophy. I'll give you a link if you want to go deeper on that. She belonged to Pi Beta Phi, one of the very first, quote, fraternities for women and had an active social life. She constantly got the feedback from her professors, though, that she was brilliant, but lacked focus. I feel ya. Like, where do I put this mental energy? I'm sorry to say that in her time and place, there were only two answers for that question. After she graduates from college, she was supposed to take up one of those offers of marriage you've been getting, or you could teach school. This year, uh, 1915, was the year that our old friend Lillian Gilbreth earned her doctorate. That's episode 59. But Lillian's story was a supremely rare one, which I'm not sure we emphasized enough. And none of the forces in the universe combined to allow Elizabeth to pursue any further degrees. She had to pay her father back, for one, and she took the only job on offer, which was a temporary position as a principal of a small town high school in Wabash, Indiana. Budgets being what they were, she did double duty as administrator and teacher, and it really burned her out. And I'm not sure if she quit at the end of the school year or if the original principal just came back. But at 23, there Elizabeth was back at home with her parents again. And even now, these days after a college kid has been an adult, or at least a adult in training for four years, it's hard to go back to the previously obedient status that you had when you were a child. And with Elizabeth's strict papa and his my way or the highway and his old fashioned attitudes about educated women being monstrosities. It only took a couple months before Elizabeth had had it. So what, what do you do? A friend from college right on time said, Hey, come to Chicago at least for a week or so. You can stay on my couch and get yourself a life up here. 
She could not wait, although the home front thought that behavior was extremely unseemly. But in her diary, she wrote, I am never quite so gleeful as when I'm doing something labeled as an ought not. Why is it? Am I abnormal? Why should something with a risk in it give me an exuberant feeling? I don't know what it is. Unless it is that characteristic which makes so many people remark that I should have been born a man. That comes up so much when lady persons just want to make their own decisions, doesn't it? People in your 20s, here's some advice for me. Take those random chances. Do it early. Uh, Elizabeth packed a suitcase and she got herself on a train and she used her friend's living room as a base, but put in a grand effort to find a job. She went from hiring agency to hiring agency, answered ads, though I think she shot herself in the foot by being direct about what she wanted. Not clerical work, she said. Something where I can do research and, and analyze things. Ideally, literature to be met with this blank stare. Even now, um, if you were to look at, say, monster.com, the number of appropriate jobs you get back with literature, research, search, mm, nothing. Not the kind of job she was looking for. She was so frustrated and she felt like her size, which is tiny, and her gender, a lady person, and her last name, Smith, made her forgettable. And not to be taken seriously, compounded by being in a big city where no one had any stake in her future. Well, as far as Elizabeth was concerned, it was, I guess, time to give up and just admit defeat. Beg Papa to forgive the loan, except some teaching job, which I, myself, Beckett, when I stress, is a very admirable job, but not for the likes of Elizabeth. You know, go live in her childhood bedroom, maybe accept an offer of marriage. I mean, really, she was very, very demoralized by her experience in Chicago. It was just a week, but I think she was pinning all her hopes on this as her escape hatch. Now, her official government record says that she got a job working part-time at the Newbury Library there in Chicago, which is a humanities research library, still open, sort of semi-private for serious researchers only. This is the library the time traveler works in in the book The Time Traveler's Wife. Also the movie, where he gets stuck in the book lift cage with no clothes on. Well, the story, as told by Elizabeth herself, is a little different than simply getting a job at the library as a librarian. It does still involve the Newbury Library and matches the timeline better, by the way. So here it goes. This is Elizabeth's version of what happened. It was her last day in Chicago, and Elizabeth decided she had nothing to lose. She was going to aim high and um, just throw a Hail Mary for a job. And so she headed to the Newberry Library, even though she didn't have credentials to be in there as a researcher. Um, not exactly. Anyway, she had a degree in English and they had a copy of Shakespeare's first folio, which is um, 36 of Shakespeare's works bound into one volume, um, something that never happened in Shakespeare's time. Folio, which was a large format printing, uh, was expensive and reserved for important works. There are still only 235 copies of this book in existence, the vast majority of which are incomplete. So it was a giant big deal. And her way in. At least that was her plan. And then she'd play it by ear once she got in the door. So Elizabeth gathered her courage and she went in, where, of course, the librarians at the desk, in their capacity as gatekeepers, asked her her business. I want to see the first folio, she said, and held her breath. Is that going to work? To her surprise, a smile. And the librarian just pointed 
absolutely, miss. It's part of the exhibition. If you'll just go through that door. What is happening? Oh, as she goes in, it's the 300 year anniversary of William Shakespeare's death. And this exhibition was open to the public. She didn't even have to stress out. It was fine. She was authorized to be in there. So she didn't exactly get into the library as planned, but she was absolutely starstruck when she saw that book. Weirdly, I felt the same when I saw American Gothic up there in Chicago. It was, it's something to see an inanimate object that you really love. I'm surprised I didn't faint at the Eiffel Tower. I had no reaction to the Eiffel Tower, but American Gothic blew me away. I don't know what that's about. But Elizabeth forgot all of her worries, and she just stood there staring at the book in the glass case. And even though it's under glass, you're not going to just leave a first folio alone in a room by itself. And there was a librarian on duty in there, a woman who was hardly older than Elizabeth. She came over and they got to talking. They both loved Shakespeare. Okay, that was pretty easy to guess. So they were both from Indiana. What? They both had Quaker upbringings. What? They had both been to college when very few in their family had ever gone. It's a small world after all. So Elizabeth decided to take her shot. This was her chance. I'd love a job in literature, in research, fully expecting another blank look. Maybe a laugh, but instead the librarian brightened up. Oh, really? Said the lady. We have a wealthy patron who is trying to prove there's hidden messages in Shakespeare's works. He is in here all the time asking us if we know of anyone who would like to work as his assistant. You seem to fit the job description. Young, attractive, college grad who's interested in literature. Side note from me, gross. <laughs> what? But I think job descriptions like that persisted into the 1960s. So I don't know who I'm fooling. Uh, anyway, back to the librarian. Should I call Mr. Fabian? She said, sure, said our friend. Whoever Mr. Fabian was. Well, she was soon to find out. Within 20 minutes, this limousine pulled up out front. You could see it through the window. And a man burst in, this giant with sticky up hair and very rumpled, but very expensive clothes. And his eyes lit up when he saw Elizabeth. Hello, young lady. Come spend the night at Riverbank with me. But, uh, uh, but, and he would not hear any words. He took her by the arm. He's like the white rabbit. No time to waste, no time to waste. And he whisked her into the car. He whisked her into the train station. Onto the train. Elizabeth remembered, like, looking for opportunities to flee <laughs> while simultaneously following him down the aisle of the train car. He knew everyone. He's walking down in front of her. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Nice to see you. Pat people on the back. And she sat down on the train so she wouldn't offend this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, tell your daughters not to do that. And right as the train started going and it was too late to jump off, he flopped down across from her and he leaned forward right into her face and he yelled, so what in hell do you know? <gasps> she was so scared and angry. Also, he said hell and that's not cool. And who did this freaking guy even think he was? She crossed her arms and she said, that remained for you to find out, ah, which was the perfect answer. He slapped his thighs and he had a huge laugh and everyone around them laughed. She was in as far as he was concerned as she just thought he was a one-way ticket to crazy town. 
not convinced. And he explained the job to her. For years, he'd been convinced that there was more to Shakespeare than met the eye. Hidden in the pages of the first folio were messages from, quote, the true author of Shakespeare's works, Sir Francis Bacon. Now, I will tell you, this Baconian theory is still alive, though its followers don't approach nearly the numbers you had in the 18th and 19th centuries. It's impossible to go into the whole history, but let me just say that even learned men, famous men, were on board with this at the time. Mark Twain, Charles Darwin, <laughs> Charlie Chaplin. A court in Chicago had ruled against a man who had sued Mr. Fabian to prevent this, quote, fraudulent research from being published and from continuing. But the judge said that Mr. Fabian, our Mr. Fabian, sitting across from us in the train, had produced enough evidence that Bacon wrote the works of Shakespeare that Mr. Fabian's project could continue. Okay, so supported by the court system and several great lights of literature and science. In this atmosphere, <laughs> Mr. Fabian introduced her to a lady named Mrs. Gallup, who had some years ago published a book called The Bilateral Cipher of Sir Francis Bacon, Discovered in His Works. Bacon, said Mrs. Gallup, was secretly the son of Queen Elizabeth I and therefore had been the rightful king of England. That's spicy. And he had to hide his identity because otherwise it would be very dangerous for him and for the whole of the country. And so he inserted messages in Shakespeare's works. So how did he do that? Well, according to Mrs. Gallup, he did it by slightly altering the letters in these works into two distinct alphabets, which she called A and B. The second step was that certain patterns would emerge, A and B, that could be cross-referenced with a key that would let you decode the hidden messages into readable text. You're probably more familiar with the way that two symbols can say a lot of things by either binary code, where a zero and a one, only two symbols, can mean any number, or Morse code, where a dot and a dash can combine in different patterns to give you your letters. I will say that Sir Francis Bacon himself stated that a code could easily be passed this way in a book he wrote in 1623. He even told people how to encode and decode them. So the whole prospect of a bilateral code hidden in Shakespeare's works is perhaps not as far out of left field as the average person might guess, or as I thought it was. Mrs. Gallup was good in the room. She had hundreds of pages of scientific appearing research research, and she sure made a good case. Elizabeth, as new to this as you or I might be, was put through a series of tests, mostly to check for her attention to detail and obviously her patience. This was tedious, tedious work. Most important, she seemed to have passed the first test and so was set up in a bedroom in a little cottage on the grounds of this place, just Riverbank. Spend the night with me at Riverbank. It was as close as Mr. Fabian, eccentric millionaire, could get to Sir Francis Bacon's utopian world that he called the New Atlantis, where 
Scientists spend their time in pure research in the middle of an unspoiled natural garden of Eden. Well, in Mr. Fabian's case, he brought the emperor of Japan's gardener over to handle some of the gardening, but the place was sort of madness, though I would probably like it. Food came in from a farm right on site, where scientists were busy investigating things like hybrids and improved methods of farming. There was a whole team of acoustics engineers in their own building who are still working there to this day, by the way. Yes, people were walking around the grounds waving papers and having meaningful conversations. Unbeknownst to Elizabeth, new forms of bombs were being tested just down the road. Real, for real, disassembled, reassembled on a hill, Dutch windmill ground the flour for the daily bread. A pair of monkeys wandered the grounds smoking cigarettes and terrifying the crap out of people. You might meet P.T. Barnum or Lily Langtree at dinner. This place was always weird and always fabulous. He told all of his employees, who he didn't pay very well, that he would take care of them. When they were not actually working, they could live like the idle rich. Anything their hearts desired. It was a strange strange wonderland. And I I do wonder how eccentric I could possibly get with $100 million. I'm not sure that I would import smoking monkeys, but you never know. And in this strange place, with 150 fellow workers on various projects, Elizabeth set to work with her magnifying glass and her pen to see if she could recreate the work of Mrs. Gallup. Sort of to verify it was her role to make sure someone else can reproduce your results. And Mr. Fabian was extremely proud of Mrs. Gallup, extremely proud of the Bacon investigation. It was his big thing. Anytime anybody came on site, that's where they would go. And um, I'm sorry to say that Elizabeth, the skeptic, the questioner, the demander of proof, almost immediately had her doubts. In her mind, Mrs. Gallup was not purposely setting out to trick anybody. Mr. Fabian was not a scam artist, but they were victims, she thought, of wishful thinking. Kind of like running a Ouija board. There were a lot of stretches. There's a lot of faulty logic, she thought. And could she let it ride? That was going to have to be her big decision. Well, it was not all work and no play. She began to see more and more of a fellow Riverbankian, a geneticist named William Friedman, who was busy in a non-Dutch, non-authentic windmill <laughs> running um, fruit fly experiments. But Mrs. Gallup had roped him into doing all of her photo enlargements for her. And so he had been around the bacon work for a while. And after a few months of hanging out dating, whatever you call it, in this day and age, they almost shyly, almost reluctantly and fearfully revealed to each other that they thought all the bacon stuff was bunkum. But what are you supposed to do? Tell your obsessed multimillionaire boss that his pet project is nothing? You'd lose your jobs, for one thing, your homes, for another because they're tied to your jobs. Maybe you'd even lose each other, you know, because it was getting medium serious. Elizabeth was called home. Her poor mama had taken a turn for the worse, for the way worse. In fact, she died while Elizabeth was home. And Elizabeth had um, some quiet time to think. And when she came back, she and William determined that they were going to pull themselves off the Shakespeare project. Maybe they could make a case for both of them working on the fruit flies or some other project, but they really felt like they had to leave what they thought was 
kind of a flawed project. And yes, true to form, Mr. Fabian did shout at them and he raged and he thumped the table, but it wasn't as bad as they thought it would be. And they were kind of unsure about why. Why wasn't Mr. Fabian more upset? Well, it was because a telegram had come to Riverbank that would change William and Elizabeth's life forever. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash H-I-S-T-O-R-Y-C-H-I-C-K-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. British intelligence had intercepted and decoded a message from Germany to Mexico, offering settlements of territory if the Mexicans would help them invade the United States. America wasn't even officially in the war yet. The president was desperately trying to stay out of it, in fact, but it looked as if the world was determined on its participation. What if this message hadn't been captured, was the thought in America? Who in America could even deal with an encoded message like this? Raise the hand of one Mr. Fabian, who had been offering for months. Use my place. Use my money. Look at all this brain power I have up here. Please. (laughs) He wanted to be involved. He wanted the glory. Uh, They were in a hard place. There's no CIA. The military intelligence division as a whole only had 17 guys in it. Four people in the country were considered good enough to even deal with code breaking. Once upon a time, if you wanted to catch a message from your enemy, you just listened for the guy coming in the night and knocked him off his horse and took it out of his pocket. You sat behind him at the coffee house and listened to his conversations. But with the telegraph, people could be anywhere. They could send messages anyplace. And they knew you could tap the telegraph line is the thing. So what did they do? Increasingly, they were resorting to encoding their messages. Encoding goes back a long way, but never has it been so popular as now. Theoretically, only the recipient had the info on how to untangle the message. And radio had made it even worse. The War Department's telegraph code was published in Cleveland by a regular old commercial printer with no security clearance. Who knows who's in there? And the London Intelligence Services (laughs) told everyone in Washington, look, you, you, everyone's reading what you're sending. You have nothing. You have no game out. You have no game in. They needed some experts to do a bit of lockpicking. So the War Department agreed to come up to Riverbank and see the operation. All right, Elizabeth and William, you wanted a new project. Here it is. Fabian made sort of a Potemkin village 
code-breaking office. He hired a whole bunch of people of what I'm going to call extras to kind of bustle around and type and hurry across the room to have hushed conversations with each other. And it really did look like a competent, experienced, professional crowd. The military guys looked around. Well, the security's good. It's in the middle of nowhere. And then Fabian pipes up, hey, if if people invade, I'm just going to let the bears and wolves out of their cages. Okie dokie. <laughs> Don't mention the monkeys, Mr. Fabian. That is my advice to you. Um, well, it's away from everyone. Anyway, they said politely. <laughs> They're experienced with the Bacon Cipher. They saw all these pages of decoding and they don't know. They're not civilians, but they're civilians in the world of code breaking. And it, as far as they're concerned, fair enough. These are some expert people. Well, war was officially declared on April 6th. And by five days later, the coded messages started flooding in. It was gibberish. Random letters in blocks of five, just endlessly marching down the page. Mathematically, given the sheer number of possibilities, solving these kinds of things seems impossible. But I've done it. Go to Old Games Magazine. RIP, raise a glass. Um, maybe you have too. The key is to look for patterns. There are some rules to our language, to every language, that can give you the crowbar you need to open the lid. We've all played Wheel of Fortune, maybe even Hangman. We all know the most common letter is E. Letters tend to go together in English. S-H, S-T-R, E-R at the end of a word. Elizabeth and William trained themselves to solve these simpler substitution ciphers with the only real training manual available to them. But soon, like Severus Snape in his potion book back in old Half-Blood Prince, they were annotating their copies, correcting them, actually, theorizing better ways to go about things. The students had officially passed the master here that had written the book. Soon, they started writing their own books, eight in all. They're copyrighted, though, under Mr. Fabian's name because he said he paid for the research and he didn't ask for a lot and he demanded that his name be on there. Even today, Williams is the only name that appears as the author, even though her handwriting in the draft shows her as co-author. And I can only imagine how she feels about that. You know, William had the high profile. Maybe that's what it was. Well, these little books were the basis for most of the code-breaking breakthroughs in the world. For the first eight months, William and Elizabeth did all code breaking for all parts of the United States government, including the State Department and branches of the military. They began to be known throughout the intelligence services as the people to go to when you had a tricky code. A man from the famous Scotland Yard appeared one day on the doorstep with a suitcase full of worrisome documents from India. So, okay, new code, new challenge. This one referred for its key to this unknown book that William and Elizabeth never saw, but they still cracked the code. Not letter frequency this time, but word frequency. They revealed an arms deal involving India and Germany, and William was invited to testify in court, but not Elizabeth. Okay, does this keep happening? It's starting to get old. So it did chop her hide, of course. Get this though, this trial ended in violence. A man in the audience literally stood up and shot the witness on the stand for, quote, revealing the code of the messages. Because surely no one could have broken it. We're lucky that William hadn't gone up there yet and revealed that he had broken the code. If people are just willing to stand up in open court and shoot a defendant. Interesting. Well, they were a team. 
William and Elizabeth, everyone around them knew it, even if the outside world seemed to think it was a one-man show. So they were asked quite often how they managed to keep up with the admittedly ever-changing world of code-breaking, which William decided to rename Cryptanalysis because it sounds more scientific. It seems to be, as far as I can tell, the Ignorance is Bliss department. They put it in a better (laughs) way. Not knowing how things ought to be done lets you figure out the best way kind of. Um, That used to work in podcasting too, by the way. Not sure if it still does. So William and Elizabeth no showed to work one day. Very, very unlike them. There was consternation in the Fabian house until they came back from getting married in Chicago. Surprise! And now that he's family, here is a tiny bio about William himself. And if you hear thumping, it is... It is kittens running up and down my chair legs across my lap and onto the floor. I don't know what to do about it. (laughs) I'm very sorry. William was born as Wolf Friedman in 1891 in what is now Moldova. He was the son of a government linguist slash translator father and a mother who was the daughter of a wealthy merchant. But they had to flee to escape anti-Semitism. They're a Jewish family. So when he was only about a year old, he came to America and they changed his name to William. He went to agricultural college. He studied at Cornell and Fabian found him because he wanted somebody to study the effect of phases of the moon on crop yields. That definitely sounds like a riverbank project. Farm life appealed to him, however cockamamie the project, and that is where he joins the story at Riverbank and we're all caught up. She moved into his windmill, which I hope is now free of fruit flies. And this is how she described her life. To have been mangled and torn and castigated and macerated in soul, to wish passionately day after day only to die, and then to be brought by a miracle to a new place, to work that is absorbing and fascinating, to a place where I forget and find peace, glorious peace, and oh, miracle of miracles to love. Truly, truth is stranger than fiction. Well, it is because only one year ago, she had been at the Newberry Library asking people shyly if they had any work. So one year can change a lot. William wanted to volunteer for the army as a codebreaker. His skills probably would get him an officer's commission. He wrote and wrote to any contact he could think of and nothing came back. Elizabeth wrote to her contacts, nothing came back. Turns out Mr. Fabian, who always liked to be called Colonel Fabian, but I'm not going to do that. How about that? had been intercepting their mail as it came back and answered for them. Sorry, no thanks. I'm busy. Can't do. I mean, seriously, any way they tried to get messages out, they were thwarted by their boss. So uncool. So the War Department, which is the Army, set up their own code-breaking unit, the Black Chamber, and most of their messages started going there. Mr. Fabian was enraged, but what were they supposed to do? He was so depressed about this. What could I do to get these People back, this power back. He decided to start a school for cryptanalysis. Send your men here. Without asking the freedmans, he set this game up with the army. He just opened the door. Hey, um, you're going to be the teacher of my new school. Their hair stood on end. What? <laughs> what? We've only been doing this a year. How can we teach people? Four students came. Oh, you know, okay. We'll just have them sit down with us and we'll... And then the other 80 came (laughs) with their wives. It was circus time. 
circus time. But finally, they got a rhythm, and the Freedmans were so proud of what they had accomplished in just a short period of time. There is a secret message in the graduating class photo of the instructors and the students. There are some people looking away and some people looking straight at the camera, and that is an A and B alphabet in classic Bacon bilateral code fashion. And in the picture, if you know how to read that thing, it says, knowledge is power which is a quote from Sir Francis Bacon. That's a little nice homage. So while the lessons were going on, though, an army officer in the class passed him a note that he had discovered listening devices all over the place. Colonel slash Mr. Fabian had planted bugs all over the place, and that's how he was finding out their plans to join the military. He's a piece of work. All of this is dirtbaggery. I don't like it. Well, they confronted him with this, and Mr. Fabian gave William permission to join up if he promised to come back after the war. I hope he had his fingers crossed, because he did not need permission, Mr. Fabian, because you do not own him, but... William went as Lieutenant Friedman to France to help in the war effort. Third slap in the lady person face, they specifically did not want Elizabeth's help in any way. So back home at Riverbank, she was being, how should I say, oppressed by Mr. Fabian's inappropriate advances. And one night, snuck out onto a train back to Indiana, where she took a job as a regular librarian at the regular little Huntington Library to wait for her husband to come home from war. William was making quite a name for himself in code-breaking circles, and when he came back, it turns out that Mr. Fabian was having them followed, threatening anybody who gave them a job offer, intercepting their mail, demanding they come back to Riverbank. It kills me. They did negotiate a house in the town to try to mitigate what he was doing to them, but ultimately they had to escape. I have to say escape, that's what it seems like, to Washington, D.C., where William continued his cryptology work, but Elizabeth decided to write some books. The culture in Washington, D.C. was not really good about the wives of government employees working. It was weird, and they were kind of afraid to push too many buttons because there was also some anti-Semitism in America, and they just didn't want to antagonize anybody. So she decided to stay home. Um, she began work on a child's history of the alphabet, which sounds fascinating, and another one, young adult from the description of it, a history chick's kind of lighthearted explanation of code breaking. I've never seen those books. I think they were never published, which is a bummer. They got a dog and named him Crypto. Awesome. Had a daughter named Barbara. Bought a house. Hired a servant. Had a life. William was in deep, deep, deep. He was researching these new coding machines, machines that kept popping up all over the place. They'd been handed this machine a long time ago that was nothing more than kind of a circle alphabet in the middle with a bigger circle on the outside and you kind of rotated them to get your alphabetic substitution. But these new ones are getting kind of complicated with pop out alphabets and multiple rotors. And so he was busy. He was unavailable. And people kept asking her to do things. She was a little bitter by now because they made it clear that it was because they couldn't get William that they asked her. That's kind of crappy. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, sometimes she said yes, actually. And one day when she was 32 years old, there was a dapper uniformed gentleman at the door, a Mr. Root, who had started a new division of the Coast Guard, an intelligence division, especially to deal with the crime syndicates who had been supplying alcohol, among other things, to the country during this fifth year of prohibition. These aren't your friends next door with the bathtub gin. This is not your grandpa sneaking in a crate of rum for his party or champagne for your daughter's wedding. These were seriously organized, vicious, violent killers for the most part. They were not good. Here's the thing. The Coast Guard had a better radio communication network than any other branch of government. Mostly, if you think about it, because of their mission, they went out to track ships and rescue them at sea. So that was good. But the bootleggers, the Coast Guard could hear the messages. They could intercept the messages. But the bootleggers had been encoding their directions and messages. And the Coast Guard didn't know what to do with that. So please, won't you come help me? <laughs> you know, please. Mrs. Please, I will, she said, if I can work from home, because she was expecting. So she got her deal. So there's something to be said, being one of four people that can do the thing. So she became a special agent for the Treasury Department. She had a gold badge and everything. And I am cracking up at the picture of her, increasingly pregnant, taking this envelope up to the Treasury Department and walking up the stairs and then just casually headed back to her house with the fate of multiple crime syndicates resting in a manila envelope on the front seat of her car. do do on my way home to solve the puzzles. I love that picture. I love the fact that they let her work from home. It makes me laugh. These codes, though, she was discovering that these were much more sophisticated than even the Indian and German communication that was already tough to solve from before. There was a complexity here that she thought had never been attempted yet by any government even to keep its most careful secrets. And so this was going to be, this was going to be a project. Sometimes she had to go through a four or five step process with every message, transposition, reference to a book, substitution, more transposition, reference to another book, all without ever having seen the books or in fact knowing which books they even are. It defies logic to me, ironically. <laughs> well, anyway, how a person could think like this. I, I'd i be, well, I guess Joe Kennedy gets to keep his liquor company. I would give up. I'm out. Yes, father of JFK was mentioned in these bootlegger messages that she decoded. JFK was still a minor, so we needn't worry about implicating him in any of the messages. But she took all this so seriously. She set up what was functionally a war room in her house. There were maps of the ship traffic, including names and backgrounds, histories of the captain. She overlaid naval positions on there, radio communication patterns, and the positions of the towers. She trained what they called T-men. So the FBI was G-men and the Treasury guys were T-men. She trained them how to use these machines to ferret out hidden radio outposts and then showed them where they should probably look. So she's not only an expert on code breaking letters changed into other letters, but also, I guess, an expert in counterintelligence. She's predicting the moves of her adversaries. She even said, and I quote, if I capture enough of your messages, 
I can read your thoughts on paper. She brought down mafia bosses, ruined the reputations of, quote, legitimate businessmen who had their fingers in these pies. I'm surprised she only needed security once at a trial because she was making some giant enemies. She appeared in a major, major court case in which, as the government's star witness... The press referred to her as a pretty middle-aged woman in a frilly print dress and other such empowering sentences. The defense attorneys themselves little womaned her and disregarded her input to such an extent that she was driven to ask the judge to bring in a blackboard and chalk, and she held the attention of both the jury and the entire gallery while she explained how she broke the codes that would incriminate these men. She had to justify herself that, yes... These thoughts really came out of my brain. And in the course of doing so, she became a little famous. She was borrowed by other parts of the country to handle their business, their backlogs of coded messages. She solved about 25,000 messages a year with only the help of one typist, a lady who came to the house and worked the long hours her boss did. William had his own pressures. His work was top secret. He could not even tell his wife about it. I think it might be enough to say that he regarded her project with all of its attendant stresses as a fun recreation. Not to demean her work. Evidently, lives and countries were riding on him and his work, and he was feeling the pressure. The government of Japan was saber-rattling a little bit, and he felt like he was in a vice. He felt like the pressure on him was about to break his head open, and he had no one to talk to about it because he was not allowed to talk about his work at home. So for a bit of relief, sometimes the Freedmans would sit at a table and crack bootlegger code for a taste of the good old days, though I have to say, William's hands shook a lot more than they used to. Other than the occasional recreational visit from William, Elizabeth and the typist were all by themselves for five years doing all the communication work for the Treasury Department until Elizabeth finally put her foot down and demanded that they create a real department. If it's serious, you need to act like it's serious. I'm in my house. I'm in my bathrobe. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I would tell them that, but there it is. She should have done it years ago, I think, because they ponied up. They gave her an office at the Treasury Department. They allowed her to hire three assistant code breakers and two typists. They gave her a pay raise. Finally, she specifically looked for women among the civil service applicants that met her criteria, math and languages and chemistry for some reason. Um, but she couldn't find them. She hired three young men and fretted over whether they would take direction from a woman. She needn't worry. They were so eager to learn and they respected her knowledge and it was just fine. She was the senior cryptanalyst in charge, U.S. Coast Guard. That was her official title. Kind of long for a business card. Although I don't know who you're handing that business card to. Hi, are you in the mafia? Here's my card. I'll be listening to you soon. Within two years, she had transformed her dudes into a crack team of code breakers to be versatile like she was. Big picture it, gentlemen. Map your enemy. As it turns out, it was good target practice for later. It was 1933, and in Germany, the Nazis had just opened their first concentration camp, Dachau. It happened again. It actually happens quite a bit. I was sitting at a baseball game 
talking to one of my bleacher buddy mom friends. And the next thing I know, we were talking about bras and I was sending her to Third Love. I told her about Third Love's perfect fit, how Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women who've taken their Fit Finder quiz. Third Love designs their bras with breast size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and a premium feel. And Third Love offers more sizes than most other brands, more than 70, including their signature half cup sizes. She liked that. She also liked that Third Love has a 100% fit guarantee. I've tested it myself. Every customer has 60 days to wear a bra, wash it, put it to the test, and if you don't love it, return it. Third Love will wash that bra, donate it to a woman in need, and help you find the perfect bra. What really sold her is that for larger size bras, Third Love adds premium touches to ensure that the bra is stronger where she needs it. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's Third Love, spell it out, T-H-I-R. Chicks for 15% off today. The projects that William was working on in secret involved Japan and some machines that were codenamed Red and Purple, nearly incomprehensible machinery. It was really imperative that the United States figure out what Japan's plans were. His team had to deduce the plans and recreate a machine that they'd never even seen to save the world. William was going downhill temperamentally. When he was at home, there were times the kids knew not to talk to him. There were times every married couple knows, even if your husband can't talk about what's bothering him, that you know his day has sucked at work. Well, his day has sucked at work pretty much for years. He couldn't sleep sometimes. He would stay in bed all day sometimes. He took to carrying a length of rope in the backseat of his car and talking about suicide. That's a serious red flag. I can't even tell you. But Elizabeth was a woman of her time and also a woman in love with her husband. And she couldn't face the thought of depression or serious mental illness. And there was much more stigma about it then than there even is now. So she sort of began yet another kind of double life, covering for William, taking care of William, diverting him, I guess. She did things like encourage him to help her teach the kids how to code. That was an interesting project. Took his mind off things. Also, they were able to get these delightful notes back from camp. They had these amazing treasure hunt parties. I think I would like to have this kind of treasure hunt party, like a scavenger hunt. She'd set it up ahead of time and you would literally go throughout the whole city. And I think I recall some kind of company that does this in different cities. I'm going to have to look that up. I'm so excited about the prospect. She encouraged William to follow up on his long-standing idea of creating a board game. So he did. Cryptor, it was called, where you had to decode and encode messages. He sent it to Milton Bradley, the same company that does the game of life, and he didn't really hear anything back, which is a bummer, but it's the fate of 99% of creative endeavors. So I don't think he took it too hard. Also, no one in Milton Bradley understood the game at all. It was mental level Super esoteric, <laughs> just perfect for the Freedmans, but everyone else is like, mm, I feel like a dumb Alec. Someone had long ago given them a copy of the Voynich Manuscript. If you're not familiar with that, it is an amazing piece of work. Half botanical drawings filled with a lot of mysterioso code. I'm going to provide you a link to it because it's quite amazing. But the thing is, 
no one has ever been able to solve the code. And so historians thought, well, who better to give it to than the premier crypto analysis in the world? So they had a copy, not a real library copy of the Voynich manuscript. No, just a copy. And honestly, they worked on it in their spare time for over 40 years. 40 years. And there's a solution they came to. If you don't want to be spoiled, hit the 15 second button now. William determined it was an attempt at what he called an a priori language, a brand new language completely made up from the mind of the inventor using rules that make sense taken from existing languages. I'm going to link you to an episode of The Allusionist in which the man that wrote all the languages for Game of Thrones talks about his process. That was an interesting rabbit hole. Just when Elizabeth had gotten William back on an even keel, the entire code-breaking crypto analyst community was punched in the face when the man who had run the Black Cabinet, which had been unceremoniously closed down in 1929, he published a book revealing processes, people, secrets. It was upsetting and shocking. It set the entire community back years. All their enemies now knew their secrets. There was even hinting at sexual intrigue and it ruined reputations. His point was, well, my department's closed, so surely it can't do any harm. But then he also admitted that he invented a lot of the salacious passages. Unfortunately, though, Elizabeth was identifiable, largely because of her appearance at that major court trial. And she was a subject of many, many unwelcome press interviews in which people had the temerity to be surprised that you're so little and cute and presentable. I wouldn't think a woman like you could solve such technical puzzles. How do you manage to keep a nice home if you have a job that has so much responsibility of a housekeeper? Yo, and it's really Nanya. That, of course, is not really what she said. She just smiled and grinned and bore it. Uh, mm, yes. Well, once prohibition was over and the liquor runners had to economically turn their attention to more dangerous things like drug smuggling, Elizabeth was literally coordinating multinational investigations with the U.S. State Department. She was crushing global heroin rings based in China, where she didn't speak the language. She was still able to crack the code. I cannot fathom how you can crack a code in a language you don't speak, but I guess there's patterns in everything. Um, once you know the frequency, it's just a matter of technique. I don't know. She turned English words into numbers that corresponded to Mandarin letters that were found in one specific Chinese commercial dictionary that stood for Mandarin words that were translated into English words. It's a mess. Sure, let's spend a weekend. And the press wanted to give her all the credit. Even though she worked with a giant team and the Treasury Department was worried she was attracting too much attention. Please, she said, if you're going to pay attention to this at all, credit the whole Coast Guard, please. She actually felt so bad about this. She hand wrote apologies to the people she worked with, the people she worked for, saying it's just too irresistible to reporters to focus on me as a woman. The press just kept going. She's the key woman of the team and Lady Manhunter. She was evidently now the most famous codebreaker in the entire world. And all she wanted to do was make it stop. Though the publicity... And a genuine recognition of her achievements led her old alma mater, Hillsdale College, to award her an honorary law degree, a doctorate, Dr. Elizabeth Friedman, in 1938, the year before the war started. 
And once it had begun over in Europe, Elizabeth received her wish to be pulled out of the public eye. Her unit of the Coast Guard, Unit 387, was tasked with some top secret material. This period of her life is often shrouded in mystery. She didn't talk about it at the time, of course, because she couldn't, any more than William could talk about his work. She began to break Nazi codes, first on their ships, and then by the 1940s, hundreds of messages started to arrive from previously unknown radio stations that were located in South America and Mexico. Messages that talked about the roots of U.S. shipping, the capacity of American factories, distances to key targets, very warlike information. And the American government was very, very worried because if the Nazis took Britain, the next thing they might consider doing is traveling to South America, setting up bases, and attacking the United States. So by all means, it was important to keep South America out of the hands of the Nazis. Did you even know that was happening? The challenge. She had to read their communication without letting them know she knew what they were saying. Does that make sense? She had to stay in the dark and take notes, not let them know she was there because then they'd change codes. They'd move locations. Today, you can't swing a cat around your Netflix without coming up with some kind of counterintelligence operation on your TV. But back when Elizabeth was operating, there wasn't anyone in America doing this work. And it was very, very important that no one knew that it was her. A book I read called All the Information Being Dumped on Her Desk, A Daunting mountain of nonsense. And she had to wade through it with her team, layer after layer of encrypted information that was absolutely vital to the security of the United States. I just want to read how complicated this was. So the spies were assigned an ID number. They would encrypt a message by taking their own ID number, adding it to the date and turn to the resulting page in the novel. The first words of the first line became part of that day's key, and the rest of the key was taken from the first letters of the lines going down the page that didn't have a paragraph indent. I am I, baffled. I'm baffled. Somehow she solved it. She's good. And then came the messages from the German Enigma machines. Unlike simple letter substitutions and everything else she was familiar with. These machines were full of gear type things that had different alphabets on them. You needed a pair of matching Enigma machines that are wired the exact same way to decode and send messages because every time you typed a letter, it would reset to a different alphabet on a different wheel. Which alphabet? Which wheel? Oh, there's the rub. Not only were there a lot of wheels, they could be interchangeable. Number one could be three, three could be five. It all depended on how you'd agreed to set up your Enigma machines at the beginning. Even the letter with which you started on each wheel could be changed. The number of combinations you had to go through to get the key to each machine was a seven followed by 145 zeros. That's a lot of possibilities. So you would think this would be unbreakable and you would think everyone would be full of despair. And they were. <laughs> they were, of course. Well, a group of scientists and codebreakers in Poland were the first ones to sort of crack the possibility of how to crack the code. I don't know how to put that anymore um, correctly. They built these reproductions that they called bombs, B-O-M-B-E-S, where they could in real time try different combinations out just mechanically. And it seemed to speed up the process. A man named Alan Turing discovered how to improve them to make them faster. And this is where Bletchley Park came in. 
super famous mansion outside of London in the country where a bunch of code breakers, mostly women, from the Wrens, who learned how to operate these mechanical reproductions. Eventually, both of these teams were able to solve the Enigma machines, but that's Britain. That's Poland. This is America. And nobody's telling Elizabeth and her team what this was all about. Well, William's been a collector of all these kind of machines for years and years. In fact, there's been an old version of an enigma machine sitting up on the shelf over in the office like a decorative object collecting dust for almost a decade. So they went and got that. And once they figured out what they were dealing with, among themselves, they cracked the code. Well, there were three kinds of bummer. The Polish people had already solved it. Bletchley Park had already solved it. And the messages that they had spent so long to unearth were actually from a neutral country, uh, Switzerland, and had nothing to do with the war effort at all. The Enigma machine she had snagged the messages from was evidently some commercial machine you could buy from a traveling salesman. Super bummer. But it does seem to be a significant achievement. The FBI came calling for Elizabeth, specifically J. Edgar Hoover, who's really, really good at solving mafia cases because there's dudes that like to show off their wealth and appear in public and grandstand, but hidden Nazis in America are troublesome because he didn't know how to do any of that counter espionage. His first foray into this had been a catastrophic snafu. And so he called on Elizabeth, uh, who trained people for him. And she made these little kind of decoder rings. I don't mean to make light of it, but decoder devices so the FBI could break their own codes without her. But ultimately, anything they were able to do at all by way of counterintelligence was really due to Elizabeth, if it comes right down to it. The British Security Service absolutely hated J. Edgar Hoover and thought he was a bumbling doofus and also an a-hole. So they were looking around for a partner in America for their covert action, and they found it in the Coast Guard, way, way better than the FBI. The Coast Guard's been training on smugglers and ne'er-do-wells, people who acted a lot like spies, covering their tracks, hiding, moving their operations. The Coast Guard could hear things in America. The British could hear things all over Europe. You know what? Also, why don't we hook you up with the Bletchley Park people? Where were you a year ago when I was killing myself? Well, better late than never. And then William got sick. So sick. He showed up at Walter Reed Hospital telling the doctors he was having a nervous breakdown. They sent him to talk to a psychiatrist. And of course, he couldn't talk about work, just that he was stressed about work. And he was committed to the hospital for the next two and a half months. All the time she was covering for him, saying he was ill, answering his correspondence. And when the army released him from the hospital, they actually gave him an honorable discharge by reason of physical disqualification. After 25 years of service, he had been listed in the paperwork as a temporary employee. It was a slap in the face. Never fear, he did go back into government service in a department that recognized his talents and did not dismiss him a department that would, in modern days, become the NSA. So his work will continue. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's work is so absorbing and interesting. Through all these clandestine messages that keep coming across her desk, she is witnessing the development and growth of a major Nazi spy ring operating in South America. She's profiling these guys, characters and predictions and narratives that she can pass on to the FBI. And I'm sorry to say that J. Edgar Hoover, boss of the FBI, who never meant to share credit ever with anybody, if he could help it, took her work and the work of others, literally recopied it with his agency's name on it, 
and a new numbering system and new code names for things and effectively erased the Coast Guard's input from these investigations and therefore erased Elizabeth's input from these investigations. In addition, the FBI seemed to jump the gun and they went in early and arrested only part of the network. Therefore, they have just alerted the Nazis that the Allies were onto them and they shut down vital communication all over the continent and caused everyone to either go dark or change their codes. And the entire intelligence community had to start over from ground zero. Also, during a domestic spy trial that Elizabeth was involved in gathering information for, the FBI went public with methods of decryption and location of assets. They were a loose cannon. And so, by a sort of worldwide consensus, the international intelligence community decided to just from now on, circumvent the FBI whenever possible. Even in moments where they were all in a room. In RL, when people were all together in an actual room, somehow all key conversations would happen in whispers in the corner, away from the FBI's representative. It was a serious game. When Pearl Harbor happened on December 7th, 1941, the entire country was surprised and shocked. Think back to how you felt on 9-11. That's the feeling in the country. With the possible exception of William's team and others in the know, because on that day, William was walking around saying, but they knew, they knew what was coming. Isn't that interesting? Somehow, I guess the intelligence had been gathered but not applied. Although William and others did think the attack was actually going to come in the Philippines. But is this story just a, a backdating of intelligence to cover some heinies? Or did it happen at all? It's a great controversy, even now. Did the intelligence services know that Pearl Harbor was going to happen before it did? Wiser minds than mine have landed on both sides. Well, the U.S. was in the war now, after Pearl Harbor, and Elizabeth's team was transferred to the Navy as a matter of wartime urgency. In addition, since she was not a military person, I'm very sorry to say that her department, her department, the department she built from the ground up out of her brain and her careful training and her philosophies was taken out of her control and given to a young military man to run. She was kept on as just another analyst. And I wouldn't be surprised if her walls had holes in them. It was so unfair. It was so unfair. But civilian control of sensitive operations was not on. And I guess I can kind of get that. It's wartime. But behind the scenes, people still needed her. The president himself asked for her help in constructing what would ultimately become the CIA, training the people in that agency how to do what she did. Although I have to say it's being asked to train your replacement at work. You know, it's kind of gross, especially if you're being laid off, but you kind of do it because you want to be a respectful, responsible citizen of the world. Well, people in the department still deferred to her authority. And I'm reminded of in the Gilded Age when, say, the dowager is still in the house, but the son marries and all the servants still look to the dowager for their orders. That's exactly what was happening here. Meanwhile, the flow kept coming from South America. Turn and twist as they might, Elizabeth and her team are right behind the Nazis. One of the books I read described it as Elizabeth, quote, having the Nazi brain in a jar on her desk. Yes, the number of lives that she and her team saved during the war 
is impossible to know exactly. Thousands, tens of thousands. They prevented the Nazis from getting a foothold in South America. I think that's a facet of World War II that I'm not really sure a lot of us ever hear about or even think about how dangerous that would have been. But there was this one troublesome circuit, circuit 3-8, Uh, spy code named Sargo, who was using this completely unbreakable code. What on earth was this guy using? It drove Elizabeth crazy. She determined that it must be mm, her old nemesis, another Enigma machine, probably a real spy one this time instead of a commercial one off the shelf. And independently of each other, the sluice over at Bletchley Park in England and in Elizabeth's department started to try to solve this new powerful Enigma machine and all the messages that it had. Hilariously, they both came to the same conclusions at the same time. And unlike the FBI that never shared information or credit, Elizabeth's team sent a message to Bletchley Park telling them how to solve it. And they sent her back a response. (laughs) Many thanks. As this has just been solved here, details not required. (laughs) There was always, and I really love this, a friendly and honestly respectful rivalry between the denizens of Bletchley Park and the occupants of Elizabeth's department in America. But what this meant was that the glorious dream of the Nazis for a foothold in South America was crumbling. The British and the Americans were not letting them in. And Elizabeth watched in real time as the network dissolved. She watched the drama and the stress and the panic of the agents who were unmasked one by one. And then the FBI took credit for it. They didn't intercept the messages in the first place. They weren't the ones monitoring the communication. They weren't the ones that broke the code. They were not the ones that solved the Enigma machines. Even though everyone in the intelligence services knew that it was Elizabeth and her team and her companions in Britain who'd brought down the Nazis in South America, it was J. Edgar Hoover who took all the credit. He took advantage of the fact that all of his detractors' files were classified so the public wouldn't be able to tell. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. After the war, as everything was being taken apart office-wise, she created a record of all the things that happened in her department with regard to South America, archived it for posterity, because as you left the service, all members of her unit were required to sign an oath of secrecy that they would never, ever reveal exactly what they did in the war on pain of death, which explains why we haven't heard a lot about what she got up to during the war or her contributions up until recently when things have been declassified. She filed that information in the National Archives, and she did the same thing over at Treasury with her records of bootleggers and drug smugglers combing through years of work to try to determine what was the important information to preserve and what could be consigned to the incinerator. William's last task with the military was to comb all of Europe for machines and secrets and hurry to get a hold of them before the Russians as preparation for a future in which the Russians and the United States might not always be allies. There's an interesting mission for you. He was even able to visit Hitler's fortress. And he took a piece of marble rubble from that place and stuck it in his pocket and kept it as a reminder of the horrors of war for the rest of his days. So we're free. We're both of us free. We can talk about whatever the heck we want to. If things happen to me at 1130, I can tell you at 1131. It's a whole new world. They moved house. 
at last it seemed like they were wiping the dust of the wartime stress and all their effort from their first house and they started afresh in a new one. They wanted to go back to the old days of old Lang Syne when they could work together on a project. And much to their surprise, they realized that the Baconians were still going strong. Unbelievably, that theory had never been sufficiently debunked. Well, there you go. We're definitely an expert on that. That's technically the thing that started cryptanalysis as a thing for the whole world, was the two of us sitting there examining the works of William Shakespeare and working on bilateral code. It's going to bring it all full circle. Their book, Taking Apart the Baconian Theory, was called The Shakespeare Ciphers Examined, and it's still seen as the major work in explaining dismissing the Baconian theory. They did hide a secret bilateral message within their manuscript that says, I did not write the plays. F. Bacon. Wags. Comedians. William died in 1969, and a heartbroken Elizabeth, as an homage to her husband, included a Baconian cipher on his gravestone. Within the words, knowledge is power, she encoded A and B forms that spelled his initials, WFF. He was buried with full honors in Arlington National Cemetery, and his funeral was well attended by members of the intelligence community from all branches. Now, about 15 years ago, between when they left the service and now, the NSA had showed up at their house with a moving van and seized most of their carefully curated library of cryptanalysis throughout the years, and they had kind of severely let him go and cut off his access to all of his old work. I'm sure from their perspective, it's a national security issue. He has been there for the unraveling of every secret code since 1917. And so those should really be in more secure hands than some guys study. It's not personal. It's business. Same thing with excluding you from your old work. You don't work here anymore. You're not an employee. You can't have access to employee things. So I don't think they were being purposely malicious, but perception is sort of reality and it really hurt William's feelings. Elizabeth's husband, as a result, had become very reluctant to give his papers to the Library of Congress after he died. He was very unhappy. He felt like he'd been tricked and dismissed. And that's exactly what happened. An inglorious end to a glorious career. So in line with his wishes, Elizabeth spent years creating a bibliography of his work. And she decided to send all his papers to the Marshall Library. There are over 3,000 items in the collection that she cataloged and described, though in all that time, she only managed to write seven pages of what might have turned out to be her own autobiography. But it never came to pass. Yet another unfinished book. The librarians, the historians, I should say, at the Marshall Library did manage to conduct a series of taped interviews with her about her life and William's life that I'm not sure you can access online. You'll need to contact the Marshall Library and I will provide you a link in the notes if you want to hear her voice. Well, once everything was packed up from his office, she felt bereft all over again. Looking around the empty office was horrible. William was gone. The legacy was out of her hands. Would history even remember her? And there was still a lot she was not allowed to talk about from her own war years. I'm sorry to say that her last years were spent in illness and declining financial security. 
Elizabeth died on October 31st, 1980 in Plainfield, New Jersey. She was cremated and her ashes were scattered over William's grave in Arlington National Cemetery. And her name was added to the back of his tombstone. Today, there's an auditorium at the NSA. It used to just be called the William F. Friedman Auditorium. But more recently, it's been renamed the William F. Friedman and Elizabeth S. Friedman Memorial Auditorium. Also, in the Justice Department, there's another auditorium that only has Elizabeth's name on it with the sentiment, Pioneer of Intelligence-Led Policing. And that will bring us to the end of the life of Elizabeth Smith Friedman, Largely Hidden Genius. And now it's time for media. Books, as usual. I'd like to start with two biographies that I really liked. First, A Life in Code, Pioneer Cryptanalyst, Elizabeth Smith Friedman by G. Stuart Smith and The Woman Who Smashed Codes by Jason Fagone. And you know what? I would like to add The Man Who Broke Purple by Ronald William Clark, which is a biography mostly of the work of William Friedman. Elizabeth thought that it didn't have enough of the man in it, but it certainly is a good analysis of his working life so that everyone can understand how important he was to the intelligence community and, honestly, the safety of the world. Also, why not read this? The Shakespearean Ciphers Examined, although it has a really long title. It goes on, an analysis of cryptographic systems used as evidence that some author other than William Shakespeare wrote the plays commonly attributed to him. I had to take a breath on that one. Go ahead. Read it if you want to. Also, weirdly, they seem to appear as characters in a book called Secret Breakers, Tower of the Winds, book four, kind of a YA adventure series by H.L. Dennis. Might be worth a shot if you have some kids that like codes and ciphers. As to movies, it is tumbleweeds. It is crickets. So I'm going to give you instead a couple of movies to watch about Elizabeth's Companions, her counterparts across the pond in Britain at Bletchley Park. Starting with The Imitation Game, 2014, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, and then Enigma with Kate Winslet. Might as well add on Amazon Prime a series called The Bletchley Circle. Links also include The Crypto Museum, The International Spy Museum, where I found a really good worksheet, speaking of kids, that features the pig pen cipher, which was the cipher that you'll see on the Twitter clue for this episode. I'll provide you a link to the Newberry Library, several informative videos and sites about the Enigma machines themselves and how they worked, then all about the bootleggers that she stopped, the philosophy of Erasmus, an episode of The Illusionist, where she talks to the man that made all the languages for Game of Thrones about a priori languages, like the Freedmans theorized the Voynich manuscript was. An example of fascinating. And last but not least, certainly, links to the Marshall Foundation that holds all of the Freedmans papers. In closing, Elizabeth was one of the pioneers in the science of cryptanalysis. And although she carved out a niche of her own with her pioneering techniques in counterintelligence and profiling, she's often overshadowed by her husband's story and reputation. It's important to remember that they're in the shadows, in secret, hidden from her present and from our history. There was a woman whose brain power once helped to save the world. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, the service formerly known as iTunes. 
I do wish that you would join the lounge. Just go on Facebook on our regular page, The History Chicks, and look for a button called Join Group. Answer the question, which is nothing more than which was the first episode you ever listened to. You can make something up. We can't tell (laughs) if you have the right answer. We're just trying to prove that you're not a robot. You can also, frankly, answer, I am not a robot, if you like. That'll work too. There, you can interact in real time in a better way than our page because everyone can talk right on the front page and it makes for a better experience. The mid song today is Spy vs. Spy by The Sound of 73. And the end song, which isn't perhaps as on the nose as some of the others I've picked, let's just say this is the the reaction of the people Elizabeth has been chasing all over cyberspace to her activities. It's Who Done It by a group called The Proper Authorities. That made me crack up. It wasn't me. I'm telling you, it wasn't me. I had nothing to do with it. Nothing whatsoever. Absolutely nothing, never Yeah. 